So um, I've been given the passage, um, John 16, verses 4 to 15 this morning. And this just carries on from what we've been uh, hearing about the last couple of weeks, where Jesus is giving his disciples the last sort of thing that he's got to say to them before he knows he's going to be taken away and arrested and he's going to die. It's his last chance to speak to them. And when I was reading it, I kind of felt that there was a sense of urgency now. There's a sense of sort of almost like frustration that he can't really get across the things he needs to tell them, that they can't really understand what is going to happen and what is going on. There's, There's almost like an anguish there in the words now. And... um. It just struck me that he knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to lie ahead for the disciples and for himself. He knows that he is going to literally go to hell and back in the next little while. But he knows that they are also going to go through the agony of loss, the agony of betrayal. He knows that they're going to betray him. And the agony of being in fear for their very lives as well. And ultimately, nearly all of them are going to go through the agony of martyrdom at the end of the road. And he knows this, and this is his last chance to try and get some of the points across that he wants to say. So this is the passage. John 16, this is 4 to 7. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will now make known to you. Interesting words. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm your fairy godmother. And I can grant you one wish. One wish only. You can have whatever you can think of. Whatever your heart's desire is. Now you've got to hold the first thought that comes into your head. You're not allowed to think, oh no, 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 that's not very good. I'll think of something better. You've got the first thing that pops into your head. Now, I want you to be brutally honest with yourself about what you thought about. Was it carnal 
or spiritual. So what do I mean by that? So carnal is a word used to describe a Christian who really is still thinking very much about worldly stuff. Like, oh, I'll have a new car. Oh, a million bucks would be really nice. New house. I don't want that thing fixing. You know what? I really need some breakfast. Something like that. Whereas spiritual is when you've got your mind more on things beyond the here and now, things beyond life on this earth, and you're thinking godly things. And um, I'll, I'll explain to you in a minute why this is important. But Jesus did say to the disciples, I have more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Now, in the letters that Paul writes, you'll hear him often say, I, I just need to feed you. I'm constantly feeding you with baby food. You're like Christian babies. You haven't really progressed. You need to start eating real meat. You need to start eating real food. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because when we first become a Christian, we're still very much earthly-minded. We're still very much thinking of things on this earth. And it takes time for our minds to be renewed, for us to change to the point where we start thinking about God. Now, I know lots and lots of churchy people who never think of God outside of a Sunday morning. Their lives do not reflect God. I don't know many people like that in this church, though, I have to say. So this, you'll have seen this before. So we've got a picture of natural man who is someone who's not Christian. Christ is outside their life, not involved at all. And their self, E for ego, their self is on the throne of their life, is in control of everything in their life. Then on the other side, we have the carnal man. So if you notice, the natural man suffers from things like fear and worry and sin. The carnal man is still subject to fear and worry and sin. Although the carnal man has accepted Christ into his or her life, Christ is not in charge Christ has not been given place on the throne. And their everyday worries, their everyday needs, they're still trying to live their lives themselves in their own power, in their own strength to achieve things. So they might be doing church in their own power, running programs, trying to get people into the church, and then they're always exhausted, they're always burnt out because they're trying to do everything in their own strength. In the middle picture shows the spiritual man. The spiritual man has accepted Christ on the throne of their life. Now what this means is that Jesus is in charge, that every decision they make, everything they try to do, every... Part of their life is under Christ's rule. So why am I talking about this? Because in our minds, there's one thing that is stopping us 
from achieving that spiritual state, and that's ourselves. And there's a constant battle with yourself going on that is going to last as long as you are on this earth. You never, ever, ever going to reach the point where there is not a battle with self going on at some stage in your life. You might win more battles than you lose. You might reach the point where the battles are easy for you to win, easier for you to win, but they're always going to be there. Self is always going to be pushing back at you, pushing back at you. We know this because even someone like Paul faced this battle. He says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not know the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And that's Romans 7, verse 18 to 19. So how do we win this battle? There's only one way we can win this battle. And that is by the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8, verse 8 to 9 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the carnal man. You can't please God because you're too busy trying to do things yourself. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So what does this mean? Who is the Spirit of God, who is the Holy Spirit. Now, this has been spoken about quite a few times recently, so I'm not going to spend a long time talking about this. But the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. John 15 verse 26 tells us, when the advocate comes, the advocate is another word for the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So he's saying there that the Spirit is from the Father. He is the Father, okay? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit of his Son, Spirit of Jesus. That's Galatians 4, chapter 6. And the Holy Spirit is living in the heart of every believer. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. So the Holy Spirit is the very essence of God the Father and God the Son. And he lives in our hearts. How does this work? Well, I'm going to borrow some stuff from a lady called Priscilla Shearer from her book, Discerning the Voice of God. And I really liked this description of how it all works. So there's a person. It's a circle with your body, your soul, and your spirit. And this is what she says. All human beings, saved or not, are composed of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Your body is the material part of you. Your soul consists of the mind, will, and emotions, those elements that make up a unique individual and a distinct personality. Your spirit is the true essence of who you are, but it is also the part of you that longs for connection with a higher spiritual being. So before salvation, these three components are separated from God. But the minute we invite him in, we are in Christ. 
we have become a new creation. The Holy Spirit comes in and joins with our spirit, becomes part of us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And this happens in every person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. You may not feel like the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, but the truth is the truth, whether you feel it or not, and the Word tells us that the Spirit comes and lives inside us. Now, the Word often says it lives in your heart, but it's in your core, in the very core of your being. The Spirit comes and joins with your spirit, and the two become one. Now, at this point, the Holy Spirit immediately begins the process of renewing us from the inside out. First, our soul, and ultimately our body can be renewed. From his new position within our transformed spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit starts to reform and reprogram everything about us until our attitudes, our emotions, our ambitions, and ultimately our whole personality and our actions begin looking and sounding like a redeemed saint of God, which we are to the glory of his great name. So you can see that, that work going on, it's, it's going to continue and continue and continue through our lives. So what does this involve as the Holy Spirit changes us and moves through us? What does it involve and what does it mean to an everyday believer? So the first thing that I wanted to say was that the Holy Spirit convicts. Now by convicts, it's not a, a negative thing necessarily. It depends why he's convicting you. Convicting is like revealing a truth. It's kind of like, revealing either something about yourself or something about himself that means that your attitude towards that thing needs to change. So the Holy Spirit might convict you of a sin that you're doing, might convict you of a truth about God, about how mighty he is, how great he is, might convict you about an error in your understanding or in your belief. Something that the Holy Spirit often does to new believers or people who don't believe is he fills them with grief. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of a time when I was a child. I was 11 years old. And I think I'd just received my Gideon Bible at school. And it was Good Friday. And I was sort of at a loose end in my bedroom, sort of, oh, I'm bored, what am I going to do? Oh, there's my Gideon Bible. Let's read about the crucifixion. It's Good Friday. So I remember picking up my Bible and finding a passage about the crucifixion and reading this passage. Now, I was 11. I'd been going to Sunday school since I could walk. I'd been taught all the stories. I knew the story of the crucifixion. I knew what happened. But today... On this day, something different happened. 
And as I read the story, my heart was broken, utterly and completely broken. I was filled with grief. I was filled with remorse. I remember lying on my bed and sobbing into my pillow and saying, why? Why did that happen to have to happen to you? I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I'm so sorry that it was my sin that made it happen to you. I remember it vividly, but I'd forgotten that that ever happened. And the Holy Spirit told me just this last week, he said, you didn't know this, but that was the moment you gave your life to me. That was the day. Now, I'd always thought I wasn't converted till I was 20. But no, he said, no, that was the day you said sorry. That was the day you accepted that Jesus died on the cross. That was the day you gave your life to me. And it, and it was like he revealed my whole life story since that day. And he said, look, I was doing this, to, this for you then. I was acting here then. We did this together. That happened. I brought you here. I showed you that. And all the little things, all the little changes in my heart and in my life, and all the times when he directed my path, between then and the time when I thought I was converted, all of that he showed me. And he said, that was when I came into your heart. He filled me with grief. He convicted me. I didn't understand it. I didn't know. I didn't realize. And since between them and when I did think I was converted, I turned my back on God. I walked away from him. I said there was no God. And, there was no, and Jesus didn't die for my sins. I denied very existence of my Savior. It wasn't until nine years later when I decided there was a possibility that I might marry a Christian that I decided I needed to find out more about this Christianity and what it really meant. And I remember vividly that I asked my mum, I'd, I'd sort of done a lot of research and reading and stuff, but I asked my mum, what do you think? Is there a God? And she said, of course there's a God. Don't be ridiculous. How can so many people have given their lives for Jesus if he wasn't real? She said, millions of people have sacrificed themselves for Jesus. He's got to be real. And it was as if a switch was a light was turned on. It was, it was literally as instant as flicking a switch. The truth. <gasps> oh my goodness, there is a God. Oh my goodness, Jesus is real. He really died for my sins. That means the Bible's true. Oh my goodness me. It was amazing. That truth, the way that truth just burst into my understanding. Now, obviously, everyone's different. Everyone's experiences are different. 
But if you yourself have once believed and walked away, he's still there in your heart. He's still ready just to say, open your eyes again. Say, look, I'm still here. If you have children or grandchildren who've turned away, God is still with them. He is still in their hearts. Once you invite him in, he ain't going anywhere. He's there. You have been changed. You have been reborn. You can't be unborn again. You can't be unrenewed again. Once you've been renewed, it's like boiling an egg. Once you boil an egg, you can't unboil it. Yeah? It's a permanent change, as chemists say. Permanent change. So what else does the Holy Spirit do? Um, Oh, I just... Sorry, going back to this. One of the things talking about the truth is that on verse 8 of, of our passage, John 16, he says that he'll prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. I was wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. I like the way the message describes the next few verses. It says, when he comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment He'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin, that righteousness comes from above, where I am with the Father, out of their sight and control, that judgment takes place as the ruler of this godless world is brought to trial and convicted. So that's what happened to me. He showed me that truth. The Holy Spirit also comforts. So this word he uses, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. This word in English means a person who represents another person's interest, like a lawyer. It's a legal term. But it can also mean to add voice for, support a person. And it's also, the Greek word parakletos um, is defined as an intercessor, a consoler, and a comforter. And I'm talking a lot about things, my experience of the Holy Spirit here, because otherwise it just becomes a dry theoretical thing. And my experience is very personal, but it just shows how the Holy Spirit acts in the life of a believer constantly, always changing and renewing that person. So I want to tell you about a time when I was in my late 20s, and Adrian and I were um, trying to have children, and we found out that I couldn't have children. And it was a really difficult time because we had medical treatments of various kinds and eventually I got pregnant. And we were the happiest people in the world. And then I miscarried. And we were the saddest people in the world. And I remember walking through the graveyard in Landaff where I lived at the time and I was in despair. I was like, you know, what's the point? Why have you given me such a desire for children and then I can't have them? What is the point of that? What is the point of the life that you've given me as it is? And I was crying out to God in despair and I was walking through the graveyard with tears just streaming down my cheeks hoping I didn't meet anyone because I was in such a state. And then again, this happened so suddenly. It was as if a hand went on my shoulder, just there. And it was as if someone said to me, 
everything's going to be okay. I've got you. And I went from despair to unbelievable joy again in the flick of a switch. It was so instant. It was just like, whoa. I had to sit down. I couldn't stand up. I sat on a little wall. And the tears that were streaming down my face of despair literally a second ago were suddenly tears of absolute joy. And that day, the Holy Spirit filled me in a way that I'd never been filled before. I just felt this joy just building up inside me and just overflowing. And I remember just sitting there like this thinking, if anyone comes across me now, they're going to drag me off to the loony bin. And as I was just sitting there with just tears just pouring down my face with this stupid idiot grin on my face, and that's all I could do. I just had to sit there till I kind of calmed down a little bit. And this is a promise that I've been able to hold on to ever since. This promise that everything's going to be okay. Anytime I have difficulties in my life, it's fine. Everything's going to be okay. God's got it. He's got my back. He's in control. It's not a problem. What else does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit converts. So sometimes we rush around trying to bring people into the kingdom. We just need to remember that that's the Holy Spirit's job. He heals the rift between a man and his God when a man turns to God. He opens hearts to the truth. He loves us as God loves us. He fills us with love for the Father. And this causes us to yield to him in repentance. And as a result of that, a child of God is reborn. And I think that this, this process is cyclical. We'll look at that in a minute, a little bit in a m- bit more depth. But it's a cycle. He's constantly doing this work in us. So there's constantly, he, he, he heals the rift at the beginning, but then he's constantly opening our hearts to more and more truth. We can only stand so much of the truth at a time. So he's constantly opening us up, giving us more truth, giving us more revelation. And as a result of that, we yield to him more and more and more. Jesus answered, this is John 3, verse 5, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit conserves. By conserve, I mean preserve, really. I just wanted another C word. And um, when, uh, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. And that seal was the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of God's glory. So going back to this picture here, this Holy Spirit inside of you, that's a seal. Now what does that mean? The word seal is this word here, sfragizo, I think. It means to stamp, as in with a signet or a private mark, like someone would stamp wax on, an old, on a letter or a scroll in those days. Um, it's for security or preservation. 
Interestingly, it's used quite a lot in the Bible to talk about us being sealed by the Holy Spirit, sealed as believers. But the other place it's used is in Matthew 27, verse 66, to seal the tomb. It says, so they went and made this, uh, the tomb sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So when the Romans and the Jews sealed Jesus' tomb so that, um, that the disciples couldn't steal the body, it's the same word. The Holy Spirit seals us and preserves our inheritance. The Holy Spirit communicates. Verse 13 says, he will guide you in all the truth. Verse 14 says, he will tell you what is yet to come. Verse 15 says, he will receive from me what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit renews your mind. Romans 12 verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How does the Holy Spirit communicate these things to us? There's lots of different ways. First of all, through the word. So Ephesians 6, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the word is our plumb line against which we measure everything. Everything we hear, so what you hear from me this morning, don't just take it, test it against the word. And if you think I'm wrong, come and let me know. Our emotions are fickle. As I said, what we feel doesn't change the truth. The truth is the truth is the truth. No matter what you believe, no matter what you feel, no matter what your sense is, if it's the truth, it's the truth. If you don't want to be deceived by the world, which is full of lies, by your emotions, which are fickle, then get into the word, because the word of God is sure. And the word of God tells the truth. Study it, read it, get into it. Start a Bible plan. Get some podcasts on your phone. I've been walking the dog, listening to podcasts on my phone. It's been really cool. Yeah. A lot of people in the church are on YouVersion, which is a reading plan app on your phone. And there's quite a few other reading plan apps as well. Try and get up a little bit earlier and just spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes with coffee in the Word just to get your day off to a good start. So God also speaks directly to you. Now, he might do that while you're reading the Word. Sometimes he makes the Word come alive in a way that it never did before. And you think, oh my goodness, I never realized that before. So John 16, 13 says, he will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. The Holy Spirit will speak the word of God to you. The Holy Spirit communicates to us through dreams, pictures, and visions. Acts 2 verse 17, Peter's quoting 
Joel, the prophet Joel, and he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Lots of people in this church have given me pictures and visions and told me about things that they've seen that have made so much sense to me and really helped me to move forward in my faith. I have had dreams that have been stunningly vivid and I remember every detail of them when I wake up in the morning and I know that that has come from God. And people have prophesied over me. People have come to me and given me a word of prophecy that has changed the way I think about things. If you get visions or dreams or words and you think they're for somebody, then tell them. You know what? If you're wrong, nobody dies. If you're right, you could change their life forever. You could bring life to them. That's what they tell the kids at Soul Survivor. If you're wrong, nobody dies. But if you're right, it means life. The Holy Spirit also communicates through the spiritual gifts we hear about in Corinthians. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. Sometimes these messages don't make sense to you at all. But when you relay them to another person, again, you help them. And through the gift of tongues and prophecy. So 1 Corinthians 14, verse 425 says, Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. So Paul's speaking about church services there. And he's saying, you know, tongues isn't really the thing for everyone to be speaking in tongues in a church service. It's just going to be a bit disorderly. And some, some people who don't know about this think, what is he talking about? So tongues is a spiritual gift. It is a gift where you don't know what you're saying, but you allow the Spirit to use your mouth to speak words. It is your spirit with the Holy Spirit communicating directly with God while bypassing your mind. And it's really helpful, especially in private prayer, for building up yourself in the spirit because the Holy Spirit knows exactly what you need. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what needs changing in your heart. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what you should be praying for. When you pray in tongues, you are praying the will of God because the Holy Spirit is praying through you. It's not the Holy Spirit taking control. The Holy Spirit never takes control. It's you giving permission for the Holy Spirit to use your tongue, which is usually used in such bad ways, to communicate directly with God. It is truly a gift from God. And apart from studying the word, I will tell you now that it's the one thing that I have found that has pushed forward my growth in faith and my growth as a Christian more than any other thing that I have ever done. Paul says 
elsewhere in the word. I am glad that I speak in tongues more than all of you. It is a gift that we should pray for and ask the Holy Spirit for. So all of these things help us to grow as the Spirit gently convicts us, cleanses us, converts our thinking, teaches us, trains us. And all the time we're getting pulled deeper and deeper and deeper into the things of God. We're getting changed from glory to glory to glory. So how does this happen? How do I grow in the Holy Spirit? So I'm going to take you back to Matthew verse 16, verse 24. This is the amplified version, which is why all the brackets and things. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, he must deny himself. In other words, set aside selfish interests. He must take up his cross, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come. He must follow me, believe in me, conforming to my example and living and, if need be, suffering or perhaps even dying because of faith in me. And I just want to read to you a little bit from Andrew Murray. This is from his book, The Spiritual Life. It's um, Undeniable Ways to Conquer the Flesh and Grow in Christ. In living for three years with the disciples, Jesus had taught them to love him. With all their failures, they did truly love Christ. But even though they loved him, was that enough to stand by him? No, it wasn't. Without the Spirit, how often did they fail to obey Christ? Peter had said, though all men forsake thee, yet not I. And when Christ said, you will deny me, Peter said, though I should die with you, I won't deny you. The disciples were filled with a self-confident spirit. And it was with that spirit that Christ took them to the Gethsemane. And even there began the time of trial, and they all fell asleep. Even the three who were taken to the inner garden could not watch with Jesus. When the soldiers bound Jesus, they all forsook him and fled. Peter and John, after a little, recovered their courage and went to the house of the high priest. And there Peter denied his Lord, and Jesus looked upon him, and he went out and wept bitterly. When Christ was condemned and taken to Calvary, there, a great distance off, they stood and watched. How their hopes died, how they were brought to self-despair. When they saw their Lord crucified and dying and dead and buried, they had hoped for a kingdom and all the hope of the kingdom was gone forever in their eyes. They had hoped their Lord was to reign in glory, and now all was lost. Their hope was gone. Worst of all, they had trusted in themselves that they loved Jesus and would be faithful unto him, and now they were all ashamed and hardly dared look at each other. 
These things had so broken them down on earth that there was no help, no hope at all. They were in utter despair. And thus, emptied of self, they were prepared to receive the Holy Spirit. It is only out of the grave of self that the Holy Spirit can rise. Come and say, I want to be forever done with self. I will deny self. I have asked God to cast it out that my heart will be empty and broken. And then say, I do believe what Jesus says, that the Father delights to fill a child of his with the Holy Spirit. I do believe that the life of the Holy Spirit is meant to be lived by me every day in the week and every moment of my life. I do believe what the scriptures say, that the Holy Spirit is able to fill me with God's love so that my life shall be one of humility and tenderness, giving glory to God and the Lord Jesus. You know, the Holy Spirit is like a river. It can come like a flash flood, sweeping everything in you aside in an instant. It can send people to the floor. It can make them shake. It can make them cry, laugh, shriek as he does his work in them. We're all different. We're all unique. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes gently when the rain falls gently and the river rises slowly and gently and fills your heart with a gentle, careful touch. It is a growth cycle. And we, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And just as I close, I'll read you this prayer from Paul. Ephesians 4, verse 16 to 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God.